Day One of the End of the World is a collection of first-hand accounts of what happened the first day of the zombie apocalypse. The Day One Oral History Collection showcases the human elements, the chaos, the heroism, and the tragedy, as seen through the eyes of people from around the world. In the aftermath of the collapse, Dunstan, Iowa Sheriff Andy Watts discovered that closure isn't easy to come by, and that the answers you find may haunt you. Once we reached containment and the lockdowns lifted, there was still a lot of work to do. There was cleanup and rebuilding, and Lord knows that would have been enough. But then there was also, let's call it settling of accounts. Not everyone made it to the shelters, to safety. There were those we knew we lost, and we took time to grieve and remember them. But then there were others where, well, we just didn't know what happened to them. We started running sweeps, looking for last little pockets of the infected, hoping to keep things from flaring back up again. We were also looking for answers, clues as to what happened to some of those who were missing. Occasionally, we got lucky, finding someone who managed to hole up on their own, ride out the worst of things. Mostly, we came up empty. Sometimes, though, we came across something that maybe we wish we hadn't. I came up on a farmhouse out near the edge of the county. Nobody there, near as I could tell. And then I found this letter tacked to the door of the barn. Every other weekend, that's what I have gotten for the past three years. Pick up from school at 2.40 on Friday, back to her mom by 6 on Saturday. It was a rotten deal, but I was lucky to have it. My lawyer, bottom third of her class at UI, thought it was nuts that I caved. And again, she didn't know what Carol, my ex, knew. In my early 20s, I thought I was going to get out. I really did. I scraped together some student loans and headed downstate looking to get a degree in electrical engineering. It was an uphill climb. I wasn't much of a student in high school and had a lot of bad habits to shake off. But I kept at it and over time built up some momentum. New areas of my brain started to click together and I started to pick things up faster. And then Dad got sick. Everything went on hold, and I went back to help out. He held on for 18 months, leaving me to care for Mom, the farm, and a mountain of medical debts. She was never the same after he passed, a shell of her former self, joyous and lost. Two years later, she joined him, wherever we all go when we're done here. I could have cut and run, maybe I should have, just let it all go and make myself into somewhere else. I've got a stubborn streak, my real family legacy. <laughs> I was holding a bad hand and I was going to play it through, win or lose. I struggled with bum harvests, volatile prices, and loneliness, but I kept afloat, barely. I thought I had the third one licked when I met Carol. She worked for the county as an office manager, picking up shifts at Dudley's, the only bar in town, to shave down her own debt. It wasn't hard to figure out her schedule, and I made sure to make an appearance every night she was there. I made her laugh, at least at first, and that got my foot in the door. <laughs> Three months in, we were dating, engaged at six, with mom's ring, and married one year later. She quit the bar when she found out she was pregnant, oof which put a bit of a squeeze on us. A new baby doesn't come cheap, and it fell to me to find a way to pick up the slack. 
I wired up a barn with some grow lights and started growing something a bit more exotic than soybeans. I kept my ambitions modest, selling wholesale exclusives to some friends from my brief college days. I kept the more conventional crops going as a front, but it was the sticky green that kept us out of foreclosure. It wasn't long after Shelby arrived that Carol and I started to realize that our relationship may not have been built on as solid a foundation as we thought. Exasperated sighs turned to petty bickering to barn burner fights and bitter silences. By the time Shell took her first steps, we had cooled down to a miserable detente. Shortly after her fourth birthday, Carol informed me that the two of them were moving out. I was devastated. Carol and I could never go back, but the thought of life without my little girl was unbearable. My ex had me over a barrel. The state's views on cannabis were significantly less progressive than some neighboring jurisdictions, and a single call from Carol could easily keep me from seeing my daughter until her 18th birthday. So, I took the deal. Better to have some place in my baby's life than none at all. 78 visits over the next 36 months. My whole life structured around them. 27 hours of joy followed by 13 days of heartbreak. Lather, rinse, repeat. In all that time, I was never once late picking her up or dropping her off. Painful as it was, I always made sure she was back with her mother spot on six, even on the days when she begged me to let her stay a little longer. Oh, man. I wasn't going to take any chances rocking the boat. We had a system, one that you could argue was deeply unfair to me, but on some level it worked. Structure and routine are good for kids, or so I'm told, and I held on to that during the days that she wasn't around. All of this is to give you context of how weird it was for me to get a call from Carol at 11 on a Wednesday morning. We'd found a way to be cordial in each other's presence and didn't trash talk about each other in front of the kid. At least, I didn't. Can't speak for her. But there was rarely any contact between us without some Shelby-related problem to solve. Hey, Carol, I need you to pick her up. No pleasantries, no preamble, just a direct, non-negotiable demand. What's the problem? I don't know. There was some kind of incident at the school. They're not saying what, but they're canceling classes and sending the kids home. How'd you hear about this? I got a text. They're sending them out to all the parents. That stings a little bit. I'm not even listed as an emergency contact. I need you to do this for me, okay? She continues. I'd do it myself, but I can't get away. It's madhouse over here. What's going on? I told you. I don't know. Phones are ringing off the hook, but nothing makes sense. Please don't ask any more questions and just tell me you'll do it. Of course, I'm on my way. Thank you. Text me when you get her to your place, and we'll figure out what we can do from there. <laughs> she hangs up before I can say anything else. It's all very strange, but if it nets me a couple hours with my little seashell, I'll take it. Two miles of gravel and I hit Highway C. An ambulance zips past me heading east. I turn west, passing a sheriff's patrol car heading for the big red bus. A few minutes later, a state cop flashes his lights, overtaking me through a no-passing zone. That's a lot of emergency vehicles in a big hurry for this far off the beaten path. The school is more abuzz with activity than I've ever seen it. 
Sheriff's vehicles and a pair of ambulances are clustered around the south wing. Deputies forming a cordon around the entrances. Cars are lined up in the pickup drive. And parents huddled around teachers pressing them for information. I park across the street instead of braving the line and jog over to the breezeway. It doesn't take me long to pick out Shelby, second tallest girl in her class. She spots me, runs over, and grabs onto my leg. Curious as I am about what's going on here, I'd rather just get Shelby home and safe. I pick her up and walk us back to the truck, faster and easier than letting her little legs try to keep up. <laughs> Nobody asks who I am, grabbing this little girl and sweeping away with her, which is a little disturbing, but understandable given the swirling chaos around the school. I get her strapped into her booster seat and we take off. This part of the pickup process is usually one long, fast-paced monologue where she tells me everything that had happened since I saw her last. <laughs> A breakneck summation of real and occasional fictional events that melts my heart. Today, though, she is strangely quiet, only responding to direct questions. You feeling okay, Punkin? She shrugs. A clear indicator that no, she is not. The silence is thick and uncomfortable for most of the long ride back home. I don't want to press her while she isn't feeling well. The scene of the school was fraught with tension, and I have to wonder what kind of trauma it might have visited on the kids. I decide, for now, to give her a little space to process what's going on and let her come to me when she's ready. I park close to the front porch, spring her from her seat, and hoist her out of the truck. She listlessly climbs the steps to the door while I fetch her backpack. I get her settled on the couch, turn on some cartoons, and exit to the kitchen to text her mom. Home safe. Best to keep things simple and direct. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't worried, but no sense in stirring things up if I don't have to. Five minutes crawls by as I wait for a response. Usually, Carol gets right back to me. She can be a trial, but she stays open and communicative especially when it comes to our kid. I tamp down my tingling paranoia, reminding myself that she told me they were swamped at the office. She'll get back to me as soon as she can. I return to the living room. Shelby has nodded off, murmuring quietly in her sleep. I turn off the television and sit down next to her. She snuggles into me, looking for comfort. She's radiating heat like a little furnace. I place the back of my hand against her forehead, startled by how hot it is. She usually heats up when she falls asleep, but not like this. I sit with her for a while, grinding my teeth, then ease out from under her and return to the kitchen. I text Carol again, hoping she'll respond, even if just to complain about me bugging her at work. Nothing. I run a dish towel under cold water and wring it out. Folding it up, I go back to the living room and lay it across Shelby's forehead. A little shudder runs through her and she moans. I check her neck to see if her glands are swollen. There was an outbreak of scarlet fever at her school last year, and I have to wonder if it's come back. I pace around the room, not sure what to do. Not sure what I can do. I zip up the stairs to the bathroom and rummage around under the vanity, digging out the digital thermometer I bought a few years back. I poke the probe into her ear and wait for the readout. 102 degrees. Not good. I try Carol again, calling this time. Four rings and it goes to voicemail. 
I hung up without leaving a message and try again. Another four and out. I try her office. After 20 rings, I hang up and try again. I know the sequence is just going to kick me to the back of the line, but what else can I do? I try Shelby's pediatrician. No one answers. Should I try the hospital? Should I just take her there? It's a 40-minute drive to county, and I worry about what might be waiting for us when we get there. Will it be like her school, only worse? Will I be stuck in a crowd of strangers with a sick daughter, pleading for any of the overwhelmed doctors and nurses to tell us what's wrong? She'll be shivering on the couch, her breathing quick and ragged. I check her temperature again, 105. I can't be right. I spring up the stairs and start filling the tub with cold water. I race back to the kitchen and crack the ice trays into a cut glass punch bowl that Carol and I got for our wedding. It's not much, but I need to do something. I dump the ice into the tub, run back down the stairs, and scoop up my little angel. Her shirt is soaked through with sweat, and she's wet herself. Panic starts to overwhelm me as I stumble back to the bathroom. I strip her clothes off as quickly as I can with fumbling hands. Maybe I should have just left them on. I'll never know. Taking a deep breath to steal myself, I plunge her little body into the icy water. Her eyes snap open, and she lets out a frightening wet gasp. <sighs> I'm sorry, baby. I scoop out handfuls of water and drip them onto her scalp. Anything to try to cool her down. Her eyelids flutter and her head lolls forward. There's a scratch on her forearm. What? Nothing big. Maybe an inch and a half long, but the skin around it's angry, livid, and swollen. I didn't notice it before. Covered by her sleeve, is this it? The reason my little girl's burning up from the inside? Some wicked infection that made its way in through that tiny, shallow wound? I clutch her delicate hand in my meaty, calloused paw, her weak fingers clinging to mine. Over and over, I whisper, it's okay, baby. Christ, you're going to be okay. Hoping that if I say it enough, I can convince myself it's true. She stiffens and starts to shake, teeth chattering. Her back arches, her arms and legs thrashing, churning the water and splashing it over the room. Her spasming hand grips one of my fingers painfully tight. I wrap my arm around her, pulling her close to keep her head from dipping under the water. I can't tell you how long this went on, tears streaming down my face, as my reason for living seized and convulsed in the icy bath. Oh, God, was it my fault? The frigid waters trigger the seizure. Did I do this? Gradually, the convulsions seemed to burn themselves out, her exhausted limbs going limp. I clutched her tight, her skin feeling noticeably cooler to the touch. Had we done it? Had the fever mercifully broken? It's then that I realized she's not breathing. Oh, God. No, 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 no comes in an endless stream out of my mouth as I hoist her out of the tub and lay her out on the bath mat. I lean my ear next to her lips, praying that I'm wrong. 
I get not the faintest hint of breath from her. Carol and I took a CPR class together when Shell was just a babe in arms. I'd never dreamed I'd ever have to actually use what I learned. I pressed the heel of my hand into her chest, hoping I was remembering things right, and started doing compressions, counting them out as my hand bobbed up and down. How many was I supposed to do before checking if she started breathing? 25, 30, 35? I leaned in and listened again. Nothing. A low, feral moan rose in my throat as I resumed pumping her chest. How could this be happening? 28, 29, 30. Listen. Nothing. Pump, pump, pump. It's not possible. Pump, pump, pump. It's not fair. Pump, pump, pump. I can't give it up. Pump, pump, pump. Don't stop until help arrives. That's what they tell you. Pump, pump, pump. Don't let your baby girl down. <laughs> Crack. Oh, God. I recoil in horror, pedaling back into the bathroom door. In my desperation, I've pushed too hard against her fragile rib cage, breaking the delicate bones under her skin. An unspeakable violation, regardless of the loving intent behind it. And still, she doesn't move. The sweet, rambunctious girl who loved to run me into the ground when she came to visit, who ran and jumped and bounced for hours, who rattled on with glee and curiosity about anything that wandered into her mind, lay inert on the floor. The last good thing in my hollow, pointless life cruelly whisked away. A throat Rending scream burst from my lips, a defeated wail of anguish and despair. The world was broken, never to be repaired, and all I could do was lament my loss. My howl of grief tapered into wrenching sobs. I couldn't breathe. I didn't want to breathe. I didn't want to live in a world that could do such violence to such an innocent. I squeezed my eyes shut, clenched my jaw. The sound of my bawling was replaced by a rumbling growl. It wasn't me. I opened my eyes and saw Shelby's leg twitch. Her fingers clawed at the bath mat underneath her. Was this really happening? Had the universe registered my pain and reversed course? The glimmer of hope I felt guttered and died as she sat up. Her face twisted in a snarl, eyes filled with hate and rage. This perfect little creature that I centered my existence around glared at me with a soul-burning contempt that powdered the shattered manes of my broken heart. When Shelby was four, she went through a biting phase, one that cost us two babysitters and a preschool. <laughs> I learned to be quick, to avoid painful chomps from a mouthful of baby teeth. I ducked to the side as she lunged at me, her teeth clacking next to my ear. I grabbed hold of her as she flailed at my face, trying to scratch me. She nearly caught a finger that I had too close to her mouth. This was too much. I didn't want to hurt her, but I also didn't want her to hurt me. I'd been scared and confused for far too long. I thought I had hit rock bottom, but clearly there was always further to go. I shoved her away from me, 
feeling a pang of regret for treating her so roughly. Then again, she had been dead mere seconds ago, so what did anything mean anymore? I swung the bathroom door open, dove into the hallway, and yanked it closed behind me. The door shuddered in its frame as Shelby slammed into it over and over. I sat on the floor and tried to collect myself. To what end? I wasn't sure. Shelby pounded and shrieked and scrabbled at the door, a relentless oral assault that kept me from forming any kind of coherent thought. Eventually, I got up and walked to my bedroom and stripped the quilt off the bed, a handcrafted heirloom that had been in my family for three generations. I dragged it down the hall to the bathroom as Shelby continued to batter at the door. I didn't want to do it, but it had to be done. I counted to three and shoved the door open, bowling her over. As she scrambled to her feet, I stepped behind the door frame. She shot out into the hall and I threw the quilt over her, bundling her up and grabbing her tight. The same technique I used to get an injured feral cat to the vet a year before. I carried her, struggling down the stairs and out the back door to the barn. My secret barn. The place I had never allowed her to go. I'd been tending the beds inside when Carol called and had foolishly left the padlock undone when I left for the school. Risky and sloppy, but I was thankful for it now. Shelby kicked and thrashed as I tucked her under one arm, removed the lock, and clumsily the latch. I slid the door open and shoved her inside, tangled in the quilt. I slammed it shut before I could question what I was doing, closed the latch, and snapped the lock in place. I wandered back to the house in a daze, dragging myself up the stairs and into the bedroom. I kicked my shoes off and lay down on the bed, staring at the ceiling and thinking of everything and nothing all at once. The sun had gone down and I tried to go to sleep. Maybe things might get better with the good night's rest. For hours I rolled onto my side, flopped onto my back, did anything I could to try and settle in. I finally got out of bed and rummaged in the attic until I found an old sleeping bag from my days as a Boy Scout. I took it outside, spread it out in front of the barn, and fell asleep to the sound of Shelby raging and pounding away inside. The next day I did something stupid. I woke up cold, a damp morning chill having settled into my bones. I wandered inside, and as my morning warmed me up, I couldn't help but picture Shelby shivering out in the barn. I thought about this for a while, then fetched the coveralls that I used for working on the truck. I added some welding gloves and a caged helmet from my high school hockey days and picked an outfit for her. Rainbow leggings and a long sleeve unicorn t-shirt. One of her favorites. She pounced at me as soon as I opened the barn door. She had done a real number on the inside, tearing up some of the plants, ripping out hoses, and even managing to knock over one of the planters. I wrestled her to the ground, the thick twill of coveralls protecting me from her teeth and the helmet cage keeping her fingers away from my face. For forty minutes, I struggled to get those clothes onto her. She fought me all the way, never slowing down, never tiring. In the end, I clambered outside, defeated, locking her in behind me. For three weeks, I brought meals out to her twice a day. Peanut butter sandwiches, mac and cheese, spaghetti and meatballs. 
I learned to thump the side of the barn to draw her away from the door, then I quickly flipped a plate inside. As far as I can tell, she never touched them. Though, I'd occasionally find the bloody carcasses of rats bold enough to try and take some of what I had left for her. It's been eight months, and I don't really know how the rest of the world has fared. I can't say whether Carol survived or not. I haven't really strayed from my property, keeping myself going with canned goods in a freezer well-stocked from last hunting season. I never bothered with TV or the internet, because what's the point? I checked in on her every few days, climbing up a ladder from the outside into the hayloft. I peek down at her, and she shuffles around aimlessly unless she happens to notice me. And she wails and growls and jumps, unaware that there is no way she can ever reach me. She doesn't play. She doesn't sleep. She doesn't grow. She's still my little girl. So why am I writing all of this down? In part to steal myself for what comes next. I'm not sure how long it's going to take, but I am sure that it's going to hurt. Does that make me a coward? Maybe. It also makes me human. I don't know what it's going to feel like on the other side of the unthinkable. Who's to say? But I hope that maybe, on some level, I'll be able to better understand what my baby's gone through. I'm leaving this tacked on the door before I climb that ladder for the last time. If you've read this far, I'll trust that you're smart enough not to open that door. That padlock's there for a reason. My choice may horrify you, but as I ask you nonetheless to respect it, leave us be. We're not hurting anyone. Please understand that everything I have done, from the moment she was born, I have done for her. This has been Day One of the End of the World, an oral history of the zombie apocalypse. This episode was written by Eric Fredrickson, performed by Larry Oblander, directed by Brenda Holiday, narration by Gregory Larson. Find out more about these talented artists and this podcast at necrodemic.com.